0: Podcast is brought to you by CEW Plus at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor as we work to serve our community during this unprecedented time of change. Resiliency is best demonstrated in times of challenges. Join CEW Plus Director Tiffany Mara as she talks to students, staff, faculty, and community members connected to the University of Michigan's Center for the Education of Women Plus in our podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change.
1: Today's podcast features Ruby McDougall, a 2021 Mary Malcolmson Raphael Scholar who is a Ph.D. candidate in the Department of Asian Languages and Cultures with a focus on dance studies. Her research is in modern Chinese dance history, aesthetics and embodiment, theories of kinesthetic understanding, and the social gospel movement in China. Among other honors, she's been recognized for her exceptional work with the Lieberthal-Rogel Center for Chinese Studies Doctoral Fellowship and a Center for World Performance Graduate Fellowship. Ruby is also involved in organizing fellow graduate student parents and is a founding member of Graduate Parents and Caregivers Organization. Ruby, it's a pleasure to welcome you to the Strength in the Midst of Change podcast. Could you please introduce yourself and tell us your story, including how you decided to come to U of M for your Ph.D.?
2: Sure. Yeah. Thank you for having me. So my name is Ruby McDougall, and I just finished my sixth year in the Department of Asian Languages and Cultures, where I'm doing my best to wrap up my dissertation. I have two children, ages four and seven. I uh, am originally from a small town in New England. My parents ran a home for disabled veterans where my sister and I grew up. And it was an interesting childhood. It was full of chaos. The veterans were, they, they had PTSD and sort of other brain traumas. So we had exposure to quite a few psychiatric emergencies and ambulances in our house. And when I was very small, I discovered or my mom put me into ballet class where i found a lot of solace and just began really early on starting to think about my like career as a dancer and really throughout my childhood i spent you know as much time as i could in our little town dance studio and found that it really gave me a lot of sort of comfort and order i think sort of away from the chaos of our of our home. And then in high school, I applied, without telling my parents, to a performing arts high school where I was accepted and awarded a really wonderful financial aid package so I was able to attend and was really just focused throughout high school on becoming a ballerina. <laughs> And I pursued that after I graduated from high school, unsuccessfully. I did have some chances to perform professionally, but I was never. So I couldn't financially support myself as a ballerina. And I decided to go to SUNY Purchase, which is a school in New York. And I attended their conservatory of dance. And at SUNY Purchase, I was exposed to more modern dance and I started to work with experimental choreographers and sort of performance artists and really learned a lot about the way one can use dance and your body to explore all kinds of expression. So during my time at SUNY Purchase, I worked in New York City with choreographers, um, but I also worked in the service industry as a waitress and as a bartender to support myself and This is something I don't like usually talk about in more formal settings, like my PhD is my experience in the service industry, but it was actually really formative for me in terms of resourceful, finding resources, and working as a team, and working and thinking quickly on my feet. I worked in the service industry for years, actually, while I was working also as a dancer. While I was in New York, I also taught English as a second language to adult learners. And many of my students were from East Asia. So they were Chinese and Japanese and Korean. And I became really fascinated by how language was learned and taught, especially with East Asian languages. And the more I teacher of English as a foreign language, I became more interested in trying to learn an Asian language specifically. So I saved up a lot of money and I applied to the Beijing Language and Culture University in China in Beijing and bought a plane ticket and went to China to to enroll in this university as a foreign language student. And I did that for a year. And while I was in Beijing, as a dancer, I sort of naturally looked for other dancers and found a dance studio in Beijing that I could take class with. And I met a lot of Chinese dancers that way. And I sort of got to know what the dance scene was like in Beijing, you know, with my very, very elementary level of Chinese. But the type of dance classes that were offered there were, it was contemporary and modern dance. And I was very familiar with that. So I was able to sort of quickly develop a rapport with other dancers just by way of having been trained in the similar type of dance. So through meeting them, you know, they sort of began to know me and I was able to express what I was interested in. And I just wanted to know what dance was like in China and I didn't come from studying this like academically at all it was simply by way of being a practitioner and so the dancers there recommended that if I was really interested in Chinese dance I should go to Yunnan province because Yunnan province is where a lot of non-Han Chinese people are from and live and according to crimes in Beijing There's a rich history of dance practice in Yunnan. So Yunnan province is in southwest China, and it is a place where a lot of ethnic minorities, as it's translated into English, live, and they have a history of different dance practices. So... Fast forward another two years, I went back to New York, I saved up a lot more money, then I went to Yunnan province, where I again enrolled in a local university to study Chinese, and began sort of my own research project on dance practices in the province. And I was in the capital city of Kunming. So in Kunming, there's a park that's called Green Lake Park. And there are different groups of people who dance different types of quote ethnic minority dances in different spots around the park. The park is really like a park on top of a lake and it's little areas that are connected by path by like bridges. So there's these different separated areas where dancers can, can be, and there's groups of like 20 or 30 or sometimes 50 dancers practicing outside. And so I began this research project where I would join these dancers, you know, after a while. And this is pretty common. Um, Anybody can come and learn and join with them. And sometimes you give like the leader, you know, a a little payment every week to teach you. Um, So I was doing this research project for about eight months and I was just in total heaven. It was like, I I had never sort of seen a place where there was dancers everywhere doing what, you know. And I was really getting comfortable learning in my Chinese language ability. Um, And I was sort of making plans to study at Yunnan University for my master's in anthropology or maybe apply to schools in the United States. I didn't have, my family are not academics, and I didn't have, I don't know if I knew anybody with a PhD, so I didn't really have a sense that this could be an actual career. It was just something I was really curious about and wanted to know more about. And I was able to be there because I was also teaching English. So I was able to sort of financially support myself through this research project. And unfortunately, eight months into this, my older sister was murdered in New Hampshire in her home. So obviously my life sort of came crashing down. I returned to the United States And really thought that I would never go back to China. I thought that that was never going to sort of, that that path had completely ended for me. And I mean, what, upon reflection now, what allowed me to sort of get back on that path was the same thing that gave me direction in my childhood, which was just like the routine and order (laughs) of ballet class, really. So I started going back to ballet class in the year after my sister died and it was something that allowed me to kind of reassemble my sense of self just through these memories of what I did throughout my life of just like this routine like the ballet bar plie tendu plie tendu and I think just through that kind of embodied routine I I was able to I don't even know. Get back on the path. (laughs) I mean, it's a lifelong process of healing, but that really was what. So ballet class just kind of brought me back into myself again after that loss. And I returned to Yunnan a year after my sister died with more urgency to my project. And, And I would say even more focused. I felt like I really wanted to make meaning from her death um, beyond my curiosity about these dance forms. For me, it became something that was just, it was very urgent. So I returned to Yunnan with a completely different perspective and a different I suppose set of questions about what dance means (laughs) because of my own personal experience. And through asking different questions, I actually sort of learned about other dance forms in Yunnan and other dance practices in Yunnan, some of which are specifically about dancing after somebody dies. And I really attached myself to that idea, despite, my understanding of the idea being very superficial, and, and I wanted to explore that idea. So I thought that graduate school could allow me to understand more about dance practices in China with the kind of personal attachment that I had to it now, which I refer to <laughs> as my shadow project. I don't really include these This pathway, like the shadow project in my academic work, but in my sort of processing of my academic work, it's always there. So I, so I applied to the University of Hawaii for my master's in Asian studies and my project was specifically going to be looking at dance practices in Yunnan. And I was able to return to Yunnan from Hawaii. This time I did proper grant writing. (laughs) And so I was able to go to Yunnan funded by these research grants and and it gave a little bit more um, formality to my research method and my practice. And I was able to focus completely on research and not have to kind of juggle other jobs to, to fund myself. And my advisor at the University of Hawaii, Elizabeth whitman was her name, she encouraged me to apply to a PhD program. Again, you know, I really didn't know what all that would entail, but I, I did. I applied to the University of Michigan because my advisor here, Dr. Emily Wilcox, is one of just an amazing scholar, but also she really... You know, she's a scholar of dance in China and is one of the only scholars writing about dance practices in China in English. So she was really a natural fit for me and, and I ended up here.
1: Yeah, we're lucky to have you. Um, it sounds like your relationship with dance has changed over time. You know, when you initially started, I heard the term solace brought you peace um, through mm-hmm. ballet and your own practice and the routine of it. And then it really turned into understanding the function of dance, and it's how to understand the function of da- dance to make meaning in your own life. Um, as a person mm-hmm. who's not in the arts, what does that mean, to make meaning from dance forms?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So for me, I was really surprised after my sister died, and I sort of, even unconsciously, just dragged myself to ballet class every day because it was a place where I could access these, what I thought of as like the before self, the self that I sort of always knew. And so I was able to use that to kind of bridge into a new a new way of living (laughs) um, and processing. And so when I went to Yunnan and I learned that there were some kinds of dances that people did traditionally where they would dance for two days after somebody died in much more of a ritual sense. I interpreted that as a way to sort of make meaning of a death and put it into sort of this form or an embodied form, you know, this was my individual interpretation of something that I had no experience with at all. So I mean, that I like with a cultural practice that I had no experience with at all. So that's sort of how I wanted to, that's, that was sort of the channel that I accessed into thinking more intellectually about forms, you know, now after being in a PhD program for six years and just being more attuned to my positionality in terms of cultural practice, I think that that was something that helped me, but I, I wouldn't say that I know about this, these dance practices in Yunnan and that, that, that was the actual reason for those dance practices is that clear? Mm-hmm.
1: So it's kind of like as an outside observer, this is what you interpreted the scenario to be, and it's how you applied it to your own situation, but that their interpretation may be completely different.
2: Oh, yes, completely. And, you know, upon just a lot of learning, I realized that those dance practices are not really mine to write about per se and they you know i learned a lot from them about my own life but that not my i'm not an expert <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: it seems like you know dance has played unique functions throughout your life and um, having gone through a phd process myself like there's stress involved along the way um, you have mm-hmm. been working on your dissertation through the pandemic which i know for many students has caused increased anxiety and change in the types of topics How has Mm -hmm. dance played a role in your own experience as a student and through the pandemic when change was happening uh, to your dissertation topic?
2: Yeah. So my dissertation topic, actually right before the pandemic in the fall of 2019, I went to Yunnan and I took my children. At that time, they were, oh my goodness, at that time they were almost two and almost five. So I brought that to Yunnan for field work. Mm -hmm. My 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 dissertation topic would was going to be an ethnography of the social life of the park. So that park that I was telling you about with all of these dancers, Mm -hmm. I was really interested in the history of that, how that came to be and also in how the natural landscape of the park sort of took an active role in shaping the cultural practices there. So I was so I did one leg of field work um with my children and met and danced with a lot of people and developed these really wonderful relationships and I was supposed to, we came my children and I came back and my partner joined us in December so he was there for a little bit but I was there for a long time with just my two children and Myself, and then we all came back in January of 2020 from China. And I was supposed to return in the summer um, by myself for another six weeks. And then I was supposed to return again in the winter of 2021, finish different legs of fieldwork. And it became sort of immediately clear that sometime in May of 2020, I was like, it's too hard logistically to find childcare and get everything arranged with my children so that I can leave them for six weeks or two months with the pandemic still unclear what's going to happen. Like, what if I get stuck in China? What if, you know, they get sick and I'm not here. So, so I decided, I think before a lot of people decided I decided to switch my topic completely because of just the unknowns. I think a lot of people, feel like in May of 2020, thought, oh, well, things are going to sort of be better in a few months and we can all go back to normal. But I, I changed pretty soon to a project that is based all on historical documents and the archives that I can find online here. And I, you know, I'm using a database out of Shanghai, but they're all data documents. So, So I was able to switch my topic pretty easily just to using um, digitized archival documents. And I would say even, I mean, the hardest part for me in switching my dissertation topic was switching from my focus on Yunnan to something broader. I wanted to stay focused on dance studies, definitely, because that's really my area now of study. But I switched. From something that was focused very specifically on dance practices in Southwest China, which is Yunnan, to something to a project that has a transnational focus and is more connected to Sino-American relations and the history of physical education, which then led to modern dance in China, and this relationship between universities here setting up programs there and how that changed physical education for women in China. So that's my current dissertation project. It doesn't have anything to do with Yunnan, but it does, if you, if I take the long sort of look in terms of the periods that I'm working on, so right now I'm working on the Republican era, which is 1911 to 1949, there is some really interesting connections that can be made to the later period after 1949 that connects to my first dissertation project. So if I wanted to write what my advisor calls my second book, which is my original dissertation project, it could all connect.
1: So what are some of the changes that you've seen over time uh, specifically to women in PE programs?
2: So, Right now, my dissertation is focusing on how physical education programs came to China through the YWCA and through these progressive Protestant colleges and sort of curricular missions to improve, quote, improve, you know, the fitness, spiritual and physical fitness of Chinese women. And Part of that, it was including folk dance in their curriculum. And what I explore in my dissertation is that folk dance as a form, depending on what kind of folk dance, you know, carried very, quote, desirable attributes for training sort of like modern women in a Protestant worldview. And these qualities are things like optimism, friendliness, cultural curiosity, you know, levity, and, and sort of the ability to cheer people up. And so there was this whole effort to bring in like the Maypole dances from England and like the polka, all of these European folk dances into the physical education curriculum in China. Because they brought in these kinds of displays of like Protestant femininity that kind of cohered or, or that
1: kind of reinforced.
2: They reinforced and they represented this worldview that at the time was considered modern. And so a lot of like Chinese reformers were really interested in bringing this in and incorporating it, localizing it, you know, making it, adapting it, or suitable to what they thought would work for chinese women. And so what i see happening then is the way that folk dances depending on where they come from carry certain like affective qualities and they pu- they sort of transmit or represent these to the public because when physical education programs really took off there was a lot of these like exhibits of you know physical education displays of either folk dancing or other kinds in the 30s and 40s it became more modern dance sort of just field exhibits for the public and and that that sort of changed the way movement expressed certain characteristics and especially like female movement so understanding what those characteristics were as a as a spectator, it was it was performing an international citizen and it was performing being international because the folk dances were from other places, but they were from specific places. They were from America and Europe. Mm-hmm. So they they had a specific function in what it was to be modern. And the dances that I was looking at in Yunnan during you know, my first dissertation project and when I said, like, quote, ethnic minority groups, you know, China's demographics are diverse and there's a Han majority, and then there are non-Han groups. And I'm sure you've heard about like Xinjiang and the Uyghurs and different kinds of policies that China takes with ethnic minority groups. And so, there's a lot of focus in how ethnic minority groups are really good dancers. That's like a stereotype. And part of that has to do with assigning desirable characteristics. And desirable again is in, you know, quotes, like assigning joy and assigning sort of carefreeness to these groups who who are good dancers, you know, and there's just so much about what it is to be good at moving your body and what it is to be good at thinking rationally division between those two in terms of who are good policy makers and who are good dancers. (laughs) And that has implications like larger implications with policies on ethnicity in China.
1: So it's interesting because it sounds like, uh, just from hearing you talk about it, that uh, through movement, different virtues or aspects of an individual come through just in the movement of their bodies, and that those attributes then become assigned based on culture in ways that could harm marginalized groups because it now disassociates them with other virtues.
2: Exactly, yeah, exactly. So there's
1: like this this way that movement implicitly tells a story about the individual even though it's being promoted as a cultural folk activity. But then it perpetuates, right. you know, stereotypes about communities.
2: Right, exactly. Yeah. So my master's thesis was actually about a hip-hop dance company in Yunnan who sort of actively worked against the stereotype of their of their region, which is... You know, people in Yunnan dance a certain way. They dance these folk traditional dances, and they don't dance anything else. And so this hip-hop dance group was really actively working against that stereotype and, you know, asserting themselves as, as non-ethnic dancers. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: So how was the hip-hop different in the body movement in- interpretation of it? What, what aspects of self were coming through in the hip-hop movement?
2: That's a great question. So, what they really, I think, were proud of was that they could take some of the vocab, like the dance vocabulary that is really well known in China as being from Yunnan. Like, there's a dancer called Yang Li Ping who's very famous, and she has like this peacock dance that is just a trope all over China. You know, it's sort of like if she were here, people would dress up as a peacock dancer for Halloween type of thing. Like she's very recognizable. And so they took some of her movement vocabulary and incorporated it and her choreographic and like and incorporated it into their hip hop. And so I think what was different about that than, than if they were just doing the peacock dance for them, at least was that they were, you know, engaging with this contemporary movement vocabulary instead of, Performing something that they that they felt confined their physical expression, which is like the peacock dance or these other types of dances that are performed in in a by now in a um, context mostly of tourism.
1: And so, tourism associated with business, entrepreneurship type of attributes.
2: So, for lack of a better comparison, mm-hmm. Yunnan is called sometimes like the Hawaii of China. Okay. So. You can imagine like hula dance being just the the Hawaiian dance, right? Mm-hmm. And so this the, the way that dance and dance from Yunnan is stereotyped is similar to how hula is attached to the kind of dance that happens in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And so this dance company called the Dangsters, they, they didn't want to be doing that kind of dance in the context of tourism. And they had started learning hip hop dance, actually from Michael Jackson videos in the early 2000s. They got these DVDs and started learning Michael Jackson and they said that they loved it and they really identified with it and they just sort of taught themselves and became pretty successful and were never supported through government funding, but they were supported through sort of like private businesses And that gets into a whole other issue of how different types of art form and dance forms are funded in China based on appropriate, what's appropriate. Mm
1: -hmm. Now, turning the topic a bit, I noted Mm -hmm. in your bio that you became heavily involved in supporting fellow graduate student parents. During this period of great change, what motivated you to start the Graduate Parent and Caregiver Organization?
2: again, I'm just remembering it was even April of 2020 and schools and daycares closed. And I think every parent, working parents, no matter what, just like must have screeched (laughs) in a similar way (laughs) because I remember thinking, and I wrote to my advisor right away. And I was just like, I am not going to be able to do what I've done. Like, this is just a warning. If, if schools don't open and if this continues, like, parents are going to need a lot of help. And she responded and was really supportive and was, she was like, yes, definitely. And then, then over the summer, I emailed her again and I, has there been any discussion about what we should be doing? Because I can't, I'm not getting my work done. (laughs) Like I have two kids who are two and five at home all the time. And they used to be in school and in daycare six to eight hours a day. And she said that she had met with Rackham and that Rackham was starting to talk about it. But this was still, now this was like three or four months after I had sort of rang an alarm bell already. And it kind of went back and forth like that. And my advisor was doing everything she could possibly, but she's one person. And, you know, this was like this huge institutional thing that needed to be, it had to happen from an institutional level and it wasn't happening. And I kept kind of like trying to go into some, like sending emails, just being like, what should we be doing? Is everybody else just working? (laughs) And in my department, I was the only parent, so I didn't have anybody that I could commiserate with. And I think at one point, I might have reached out to GEO or GEO. I was on the grad parents email list, and so there were a few other graduate student parents who were working together. There was like four or five, and then the strike, the GEO strike, was gaining momentum. So the that's what it was. They emailed parents, sort of wanting our input, and so I started to become more involved with that in. Leading up to the strike, just talking about the childcare subsidy and how we couldn't use the childcare subsidy, but we still needed childcare, and asking that be able to be used for non-licensed care, since licensed care was unavailable. (laughs) You know that whole thing. So I became more involved with efforts through GEO, and then the group of parents that I was working with, many of whom I'm sure you've talked to, who are just so amazing. We decided that we wanted to form our own organization outside of GEO, not because GEO wasn't doing everything possible that it could be doing, but because we thought it might be good to have more than one area that could be advocating, more than one group that could specifically be advocating for our graduate student parents. And we hoped that we could kind of like grow an institutional presence as graduate student parents so that parents coming after us would would have a place to go rather than what we had all experienced, which was like, who do we talk to about our inability to be working now in the pandemic?
1: What are you most proud of having had an impact and changing throughout the pandemic?
2: Yeah, this question is hard to answer because I think we had a lot of momentum the first year and all of us were so strapped for time because of our kids being home that, you know, even like getting the energy to meet and to try to focus and to try to make something come together was really hard. And it took away from the work that we, I don't we, it's not that we should have been doing, but it took away from our academic work time. So I the thing that I'm most proud of is that we met, that we met each other, that we were able to articulate a mission statement, that we were able to get the group organized enough to be an official student organization. And for that, Annaletus, I know you know, was mm-hmm. like so important with her ability to just get the paperwork in
1: so you talked a lot about dance as a uh, self-care practice the routine mm-hmm. of it the order of it mm-hmm. um, what other self-care practices do you utilize
2: so I still do dancing on my own just like in my house I feel like I will always be doing that whether or not it's for an audience and I also really like making things with my hands I like beading mm-hmm. <laughs> and listening to Chinese language podcasts at the same time. It's like I can just, if I have any free time after my kids are asleep and I am not able to work on my dissertation, I really like to just like bead (laughs) and listen to podcasts.
1: Very cool. Do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with fellow graduate students or undergraduate student parents?
2: I guess for my final thoughts, It would be that adjusting expectations is also self-care and that it's okay to do something not as perfect as you thought it should be or as it would be because the set of conditions that you're working with are much different from the ones that you thought you were working with when you started this (laughs) Mm -hmm. so i think that just like being flexible with your own expectations of yourself is also like maybe the best practice of self-care
1: yeah it's good advice for all of us to keep remembering that we're human yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah i so appreciate getting to speak with you today ruby thank you for participating in the podcast.
2: Sure, thank you for inviting me.
0: Thank you for listening to CEW's podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. To learn more about this episode or the services and virtual programming offered by CEW+, please visit cew.umich.edu. Here at CEW+, we navigate circumstantial barriers by providing academic, financial, and professional support to help you reach your personal potential. Established to support women through higher education, we lift up women and all underserved communities at the University of Michigan and beyond. Through career and education counseling, funding, workshops, events, and a diverse welcoming community, we exist to empower. We are CEW+, and we are here to help you reach your potential. The University of Michigan resides on the traditional territories of the Three Fires peoples, the Ojibwa, Odawa, and Potawatomi.